Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. I am Rick Thomas, and we're doing Life Over Coffee. Please check out our Sanctification Center. It is a warehouse full of resources on all things pertaining to your life and your relationships. It's lifeovercoffee.com. I want to begin here with a, a reflective question that is probing. For those of you who have been around for a while, what else would you expect? As one of our graduates from our mastermind program told me a number of years ago, Jeff Mears, he lives in San Diego. He said, Rick, your content just pokes you right in the chest, and and it does, but I trust it is, it is in a loving and, of course, intrusive way, and that's what I want to work through here with you, and I'll begin with this question. Are you more concerned about what God thinks about your sin or what others think about your sin. Now, how you answer this question is going to determine the quality of your life and the way that you interact with your friends and your family. If you or I are more concerned about God's view of us, well, then there's going to be a desire in us to live openly and honestly before Him and others. But If the opinions of other people have more control over us, then the temptation to hide our true selves while presenting a false narrative, it is going to be compelling, immense, and maybe something that would be so difficult for any of us to overcome. Now, to know what has more power over you is by assessing your willingness to appropriately, to be appropriately transparent with your friends and family. I modified transparency with appropriately. We don't want to broadcast our sins, mistakes, and offenses to everybody in the world, but we need someone around us who knows us, but they will not be able to read our minds or discern our hearts. Only God can do that. Therefore, there has to be a willingness inside of us, a motivation to want to be open and honest with a few close friends, even if that is just one trusted soul. Now, I want to work through this, and if you want to read what I'm about to share with you, you can go to lifeovercoffee.com. Here's the title that you're looking for, When I Was Silent About My Sin. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that you broadly share your sins, your faults, your mistakes with just everyone. What I'm really getting at is is your willingness or your unwillingness to share your life and relationships with others. Now, whether you share your life with others, it's going to depend on several things, but it's your desire to do so that will reveal your motivation, which will ultimately reveal what has most control over you. Now, let's just suppose that God's opinion of you has the most control over your life. Now, in that case, well, you have your answer of the kind of person that you are. You are a humble God-centered, God-glorifying, sin-mortifying, Christ-like example. 
You're more concerned with Christ's reputation that you are putting on display than your own reputation. You're not into reputation management at all as far as controlling and maintaining a false narrative that presents a different kind of person than who you are in actuality. But if you're more concerned with what others think about you, to the point that you are motivated to hide your sin, disguise your sin, lie about your sin, or to blame your sinfulness on other people, well, then you're in more trouble than you could ever have imagined. Listen to David as he talked about a time in his past when he kept silent about the sin in his life, not willing not going to let anyone into his life, living the opaque life. He said this in Psalm 32, 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4. He said, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. There is an organic physical connection to our spiritual non-organic selves. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the summer, as the heat of summer. King David lived in both extremes. After he had committed adultery, he began to cover his tracks for about a year, the best that we can deduce, because he was not willing to come clean regarding the sin. The Lord did for him what he was not going to do for himself. The merciful Lord sent Nathan to break his heart and to expose his deception. Before Nathan's visit, David commented on what his life was like when he tried to bury the sin that he had committed, which I just shared with you from Psalm 32. And if this is any of you, then please take some time and study and reflect upon Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4 specifically, and do so carefully and with caution and with admonition. If this passage does not put the fear of God in us, perhaps we are in deeper weeds than we realize. David lied and David connived for nearly 12 months, pretending that all was well when all was unwell. He was trying to ignore what he did. And though he could not hide his sin from the one who could see into the dark, there was only one way to escape from what had captured his heart, and that is walking through the door of humility, confession, honesty, and transparency. You see, you and I can fake each other out, but we cannot deceive the Lord He can see into the darkness of our lives. And even if we could keep the illusion going for a season, there would eventually be a payday someday. The longer we resist the truth by holding on to our lies, the more complicated our lives and relationships will become, as David was saying in Psalm 32. The one who sees in the dark, when the Hebrew writer was thinking about God, he said this in 4.13, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. When Paul thought about some of these things, like hiding our sin, he said this in Romans 1.18, 
the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He who sees in the dark and knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts will appropriately respond to us either with fantastic favor or he will be a warring army against us. And Paul said that God's displeasure, it rains down from heaven against anyone that's pushing the truth of God out of our lives. David was experiencing the degenerating process of what Paul was saying to the Romans in 118. It's what happens when a person attempts to press the truth of God out of their lives. Paul talked about how God's wrath, his angry displeasure, it will rain down from heaven on anyone who lives in ungodly and unrighteous ways. Paul said this happens when people volitionally choose to suppress the truth or push the truth aside. Maybe you can think of it this way. To suppress the truth is to squeeze it out of our lives. The way that I've talked about it when I've described it to people in discipleship context, I, I would say like it's like pressing down on a balloon, a weenie balloon filled with water, and when you press down on the middle of it, the water shifts to the right or to the left. It distorts what was once balanced. When we press the truth of God from our lives by holding on to or propagating deception, we will have unbalanced, disordered, distorted souls. You cannot exchange the truth of God for a lie while worshiping the creature more than the creator and expect distortion, a disorderedness not to happen in some way. David did this. Though he knew the truth about God, you remember what I said earlier, he was a man who lived in extremes. The other extreme, I've been outlining one extreme, his deception and holding on to lies, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. But the other extreme is that David was a man after the Lord's heart. This is the testimony that we see in 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14. But he chose a path of sin. And the sadness is not so much about the kind of immorality that he committed. It's adultery that he picked. And that is bad enough. But the deception that he propagated after his transgression, it is a process that began to break down his body and his soul. How could it be any other way? We had a conversation recently on our private supporting members forum at at lifeovercoffee.com. It is, it is a benefit that we uh, provide for those who support our ministry, who underwrite our resources. And the conversation was about a person who committed adultery. And, and what I said to them, actually I did an entire podcast on this, about the, the risky business of trying to motivate someone to change because we can't know their hearts. But the illustration that I used uh, in that podcast is, is that a person who has committed adultery there is a deeper sin underneath that and that is lying and deception and so whenever there's adultery in play you can see a stacking of other sins that build out underneath this behavioral sin that we are talking about 
And so the adultery that David committed was bad enough, but there was a deeper process that was deteriorating his soul, and it was affecting him not just uh, non-organically, but also organically as well. Again, how could it be any other way? The Hebrew writer said in 4.7, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In Hebrews, we learn more about how ongoing and unrepented sin, it dulls our inner being. It dulls our souls. Do you understand that downward progression of someone who refuses to deal rightly with sin? While the physical debilitation that David went through was horrible enough, the dulling of the conscience because of this underlying deception that was going on in his soul, this could be the worst of all. Acutely, obviously, adultery is a painful sin that many of us have experienced. But when you're helping someone walk through, in this case, adultery, you're going to find these deep, these deeper embedded sins that are ensconced in the person's soul. And I'm talking about deception here, and that deception eventually hardens the conscience. The conscience, in the Latin, it means co-knowledge. Maybe you have heard it like your inner voice. The conscience is the moral thermostat that tells us when we are doing what is right or, or what is wrong. It is like a bell ringing. Every time that we do wrong, the bell rings. We continue to do wrong, and it rings louder and louder. And if we do not respond, <clears throat> if we do not respond to it appropriately, eventually that bell will stop ringing. Actually, it's ringing just as loud and maybe even louder than it ever was before. But we become dull, we become hardened, and the person who is committing the sin can no longer hear their inner voice. They have a dull to hardened conscience. Suppose your inner voice becomes dull of hearing. In that case, you are unhooking yourself from God's morality while choosing a path that appears to be wise from your vantage point. Paul said people like this were not wise but fools in Romans 1.22. Uncoupling oneself from God's morality with no moral compass, it releases the individual to be a god of his life, little g-o-d. The worst-case scenario of this is, of course, Lucifer. And though no one will do what he did, there are no known limits to what a depraved soul can do without God's restrictions. Now, we have illustrations in, of this, of, of some of the bounds that people can go to in history but the truth is, we do not know the limits of that when a person uncouples themselves from God's restrictions. Sometimes people can ask, can you believe what he did? And almost without exception, I say, I can believe it. I mean, if he has been living apart from God in a self-absorbed way, actually, I am surprised that you are surprised by their actions. Paul talked about this perspective to his young protege, Timothy, as he was teaching him what could happen when deceitfulness and insincerity were in play. 
he said, talking in 1 Timothy 4, 2, he said that people who are participating in such things would sear their consciences. A seared conscience, seared co-knowledge, a seared inner voice, that is the equivalent to a cattleman placing an orange hot iron brand on the cow's rump to the point of searing its hide. The seared spot does not have any sensation at all. Callousness is a dangerous thing when it happens to a person's conscience, to his inner voice. Again, the bell is ringing loudly. Maybe other people can see what is going on in the individual's life. But he is the prince with no clothes. He cannot hear what he is doing to himself because he has seared his conscience. And David was heading that way. He was willfully exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and he was not about to alter his course. Now, fortunately, somebody loved him enough to do for him what he was not going to do for himself. Enter Nathan. In 2 Samuel 12, 7, it says this, Nathan said to David, you are the man. And many of you know the story, and if you don't, I would encourage you to read 2 Samuel 12. The Lord nudged Nathan to go to his friend David. And one of the fantastic things about this story is that David did not get the point of Nathan's fictitious monologue. Nathan was talking. David was not hearing he was so blind, so detached, so dull, and so determined to hide his sin that he did not have ears to hear or eyes to see or a heart to respond. And so Nathan stopped beating around the sheep gate with his sheep story, and he just spoke plainly to David, You are the man. Never underestimate the hardening process of the conscience when a person refuses to own their sin. Do not expect them to see what is right in front of them. I mean, it is as plain as the nose on your face. Why? Because you're walking in the light. Light does that to a person. But anybody, including Christians, you and me, we can walk in darkness. John reminded believers of this truth when discussing how sin can complicate the Christian's life. John the Apostle said this in 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. David was saying... I have no sin. And if John were there instead of Nathan, he would say, you have deceived yourself and the truth is not in you. That is why David could not understand what Nathan was trying to accomplish. If we're sitting around waiting for a person who is willfully pressing the truth of God out of their lives to come clean, we may not only be sitting around for a long time, but we may be culpable to what is going on here. We could be enabling them in their sin because we did not speak the truth to them, the word that they could not see because they were choosing darkness over light. 
After all, they turn the light off in their souls. Do not underestimate the power of sin. Do not underestimate what it can do to a person's conscience. Do not think that you have no moral responsibility to bring the light to them so they can see. Now, caveat, I'm not suggesting their sin is your fault, but Christianity is not a spectator sport. God expects us to be active, secondary agents in each other's lives, perhaps spending some time in the New Testament studying the 30-plus one-another passages in the New Testament will give you insight and motivation to be that kind of biblically appropriate, intrusive friend in those who are close to you. Proverbs 27, 6 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is hurt your friend, biblically hurt your friend if you truly love them. Wounding David is the kindest thing that Nathan could do for his friend. Saying hard things reminds me of my favorite quote from my former professor, Wayne Mack. When thinking about doing hard things to someone, Wayne said this, You can hate me now and love me later, or you can love me now and hate me later. And that is the tension that we can feel in our souls when we see somebody doing what is wrong. If fear mounts up in our souls, we will love them now, and I would put love in air quotes here because that is not love. We need to wound our friend. But because of fear of mad, because of our apathy, which is biblical hate, by the way, because of our unwillingness to be intrusive in this person's life, it appears that we love them because we're not hurting them. But they get way on down the road six months, six years later, and they come to their senses, and they see the devastation of all that they have done, and they look back and say, you knew this, and you did not say anything. As Wayne says, you can hate me now, and you will love me later if I biblically appropriately wound you. Or you can love me now because of my fear of man and my apathetic response to you. I'm not being intrusive in your life, and you will hate me later. I doubt David ever hated Nathan for his confrontation, what he did to him. But there is no question that Nathan brought pain into David's life. Nathan loved him so much that he had no choice but to hurt his friend. Going back to what the writer of Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Nathan is a good friend. He had no choice but to hurt David. If you logically follow David's downward progression in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, there seems to be little question that David was deteriorating physically and spiritually by the day. David's confession in that psalm it reads like he would not have lived much longer. Things went wrong quickly for David. 
God's mercy imposed itself on David's life by sending someone to wound him. He reacted blindly, impulsively, and wrongly to Nathan's sheep story. When he discovered that he was the story's leading actor, he he shut his mouth. He started listening, and then he responded appropriately. Without interruption, he let his friends speak. The fantastic news is that the Spirit quickened his hard heart once his eyes were open, and he knew immediately what he did, and he knew how to respond. When Nathan finished, David said the only thing that needed to be said, and you read it in verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12, six words, sums it up, quote, I have sinned against the Lord. There was nothing else to say because nothing else mattered at that moment. David sinned against more people than the Lord. And so it's important to understand that. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against his other wives. He sinned against his children. He sinned against the nation of Israel. He sinned against many people. But you hear in those six words the intensity of the confession and the specificity of it and the first thing, the main thing that he needed to take care of, the only thing that mattered at that moment. Now, this point brings us to to my opening statement. I said, I ask a reflective question. I ask, are you more concerned about what God thinks about your sin or what others think about your sin? And then I said, how you answer this question? will determine the quality of your life and the way you interact with your friends. After David had sinned, he plotted a deceptive plan to cover up his actions. He hurt many people in the process. The only thing that mattered was for others not to know what he did. It was a bold move for someone after the Lord's heart. How could someone be so connected to God and be so self-deceived that he would uncouple from God. David's life is a call for you and me to do reflective self-examination. If someone who loved God so much could fall so far, how much more possible is it for you and me to detach our hearts from the truth that we know? While adultery is horrendous, and his deception was causing physical and spiritual suicide, the fantastic thing about this story is his restoration. Like the prodigal son, the only thing that mattered to him was restoration. You can discern a person's sincerity by the radicalness of their repentance. The prodigal son threw in the white towel and gave up all control to his life, to his father. David did similarly. Now, again, I'm not suggesting that you broadcast your sin to the world, but I am suggesting that you and I, that we be willing to do anything necessary to restore whatever sin has destroyed. Now, in David's case, you see how he walked out his repentance. He did broadcast it to the world. It is in God's forever word. In Psalm 32, as I have shared, there's 11 verses there that you can read. You can also read his confession in Psalm 51. There are 19 verses there that speak to the intensity of his confession and the radicalness of his repentance. 
the most effective way for us to test the genuineness of our repentance is by giving up control of the situation to those that we trust, to those who have proven themselves faithful, to the practical applications of God's Word in our lives. If our repentance is more about controlling the outcomes, then we are not in a repenting frame of mind. If we are willing to give up control of our lives biblically and appropriately, and the situations that we are in by humbly submitting to those who can help us, then we should expect God's fantastic favor. If you want to read what I've just shared with you, again, you can find it at at lifeovercoffee.com. You can read the entire article. You can watch the video. You can listen to the podcast. Search some version of when I... When I was silent about my sin, let me wrap up by just asking a few questions that I, I continue that I hope that will continue to make this reflective probe. As my friend Jeff Mears said, your your content just pokes us right in the chest, and I trust in a loving way, but most definitely an intrusive way. Question number one: How silent are you about your sin? Let me add that caveat again: It's not about broadcasting it to everybody, putting it on social media. It's about the motivation of your heart, the willingness of your soul, the desire to be open and honest among a few competent, close, caring, loving, courageous friends. How silent are you about your sin? Number two, if you are afraid to share your struggle, then the question is, why are you? And again, I trust as you answer that question that it will, it will start with you. Uh, many people have been hurt by other people, and, and I can hear them thinking already that, well, the reason I don't share is because such and such did this when I did that. I was at this institution, and I, I became transparent, and and these bad things happened to me. And I know those stories are real, but the solution to what happened in the past is not isolation and separation from God's mercy in our lives. And one of the means of mercy are these secondary agents like Nathan. And so sanctification happens in community. We can't do sanctification alone. And I'm I'm sad for those of you who have been hurt in the past because of the things that you have done, maybe. And as you shared those things, I have had that experience too, and I know many of you have. But when I ask the question, if you are afraid to share your struggles, why are you? It is a self-reflective question, not an other-centered question that I'm asking primarily. Number three, what are you trying to protect? What are you trying to control? What are you trying to hide? This question has everything to do with the gospel. The gospel is Christ dying on the cross, regenerating us, And if we're truly gospel-centered, gospel-motivated, gospel-empowered, Christ-empowered, then we have nothing to protect, nothing to control, and nothing to hide. If the gospel is dominating our hearts, our minds, our souls, then are we trying to protect something? Are we trying to control something? Are we trying to hide something? If so, there could be a, a gospel disconnect. In our lives, there is a greater power than the gospel managing us. Number four, are you willing to bury 
your actions and reap the consequences as David did, regardless of what those consequences may be. If you are, may you have an epiphany, may you have an aha moment, may may there be a, a parenthesis of light here just for a moment and answer this question, why? Why would you be willing to bury your actions and reap the consequences regardless of what those consequences are? And then finally, number five, what if you listen to Nathan and respond like David? The light does break in and it stays. You are a person of the light and you walk in the light, as John was saying in 1 John 1. What if you listen to Nathan and respond like David? If you're willing, will you talk to someone today? In Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, I did not read those. I read verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, I was deteriorating moment by moment. But before David said those words, he said in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. May you and I be those people. Thank you so much, and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.